You would not know it, but each Monday morning we have a team of people that gather together at 9 o'clock on Monday morning, our worship team, and we evaluate our worship experience from the previous weekend and we plan for the next weekend. And I so appreciate my colleagues and coworkers that help from week to week to put our worship experience together. You know, sometimes you go to church and it's kind of a shotgun. There's so many ideas that are thrown at you. You just can't sort them out and comprehend. But when you come to worship at Crossroads on a weekend, there is a sharp point on one idea that we want to communicate. There is, there is a singular theme that, and everything is pulled together and focuses on that. And our folks that do worship always very prayerfully, carefully choose the lyrics for the songs. So everything comes down to one idea. And that one idea this weekend is that Jesus is greater than death. I'm sure you've gotten that already. Now I have attended a lot of funerals in my lifetime. And not just the ones I have conducted as you might expect from a pastor. Especially vivid in my memory are when death intruded into my own family, as you might imagine. At age seven, my Uncle Dale, military veteran, a Marine Corps sergeant during the Korean conflict, was killed in a single car accident. Coming home late one night from a Farm Bureau meeting, he fell asleep at the wheel and ran off the road and into a tree. And I can remember sitting quietly in our church that day of his funeral studying the grief-stricken face of my mother who had lost her brother and listening to the muffled sobs of my young cousins who would grow up without their daddy. At age 12, my father picked me up from church camp on a Saturday morning. He was uncharacteristically sullen and I would soon learn why. As we traveled home, he told me that my cousin Larry was run over and killed by a train the previous afternoon. Now, Larry lived right next door to me. We played ball together every day. And if I had not been in church camp that week, I would likely have been out on that train trestle with Larry throwing rocks into the swollen Salt Fork River. That was a very hard funeral for me. Then at age 15... I heard my father cry for the very first time. Actually, it sounded more like wailing. It was at his father's funeral. And my grandfather, Eidelman, died without the Lord. And I know my dad could hardly stand the thought that he would not see his father again. At age 16, I watched my 28-year-old brother-in-law, Bill, shrink from 180 pounds to 80 pounds before dying of liver cancer. It was the hardest funeral of all. And then in more recent years, I have conducted the funerals of both of my grandmothers and my father-in-law, my uncle Delbert in 2006, my father, my own father in 2011, and my aunt Eileen just this past October. So, I have seen death up close and personal, grieving with people in my own family and also in my church family. I have stood with a young couple at the gravesite 
of their first child, a beautiful baby girl who was perfect except for being strangled in the birthing process. And I've had the funeral for a precious premature baby boy who lived just one day. And I've conducted the funeral of a two-year-old boy beaten to death by his mother's unemployed live-in boyfriend. And I've conducted the double funeral of two teenage boys tragically and senselessly killed because of accepting a dare to lie down between the rails and let a freight train pass over them. And I have buried 93 and 94-year-old saints whose hearts and bodies just simply wore out. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, Pastor, no thanks. I wouldn't have your job for anything in the world. If it involves hospitals and funeral homes, count me out. And I understand that. But I can tell you that I personally would rather conduct a funeral than the typical wedding. I know that's weird. But at weddings, the focus is usually on the celebration. Everyone is giddy and excited, and the atmosphere's charged with, with frivolity, and the wedding party is mostly concerned about how they look or whether everything will come off smoothly, and appearances are on everyone's minds. That's not true at a memorial service. If the average wedding tends to be shallow, the average funeral tends to be deep. People are quiet. They are thoughtful, respectful as a rule. Everyone is attentive. Their hearts are tender, and it becomes the perfect opportunity to impress on people the greatest truth of the gospel, the greatest news in time and space for us mortals, that Jesus is greater than death. And this is precisely the truth I want to impress on us all from Hebrews chapter 2 today. The content of Hebrews chapter 2 is very closely related to chapter 1. In chapter 1, after showing the glory of Jesus and His superiority over angels, the Hebrew writer warns in Hebrews 2 verse 1, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? You see, the book of Hebrews was not written for God's people to understand theology as much as it was written as a plea that those early Christians would be strengthened in their faith, that they would remain faithful in the midst of life's trials and fears. It was written to keep Hebrew Christians from falling away, from drifting back into Judaism by neglecting their, did you catch the words, great salvation. What makes salvation great anyway? Well, I think three things. First thing that makes salvation great is, is its cost. Our salvation is the free gift of God's grace, but it cost all that heaven could pay. Heaven was bankrupted by the generosity of God in sending His Son Jesus, who stepped from heaven's glory into earth's grief. He assumed the body of sinful flesh, but there was no sin found in Him, and so He paid our sin debt. 
by sacrificing his perfect life on the cross, an act that made forgiveness possible for you and me. But it cost Jesus. It cost him heartache and sorrow and death, the just suffering for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, the pure suffering for the defiled, to purchase our salvation. The Son of God endured sneers and mocking and curses and spit in the face and the tearing of his beard, thorns pressed onto his brow, lashes at the scourging post, nails through his hands and feet, the suffocating agony of hanging for hours exposed on a cross and experiencing indescribable pain. No one else but Jesus could pay salvation's price, and our salvation is great because God the Father in the person of His Son suffered for our sins. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Well, something else made our salvation great, and that is its scope. That makes it great because it includes everyone, and it excludes no one, and that's truly great, and we're all familiar with John 3.16, for God so loved the world, not just a segment, but the whole wide world, not just one race, but all races, every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And what about John 3.18? Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Have you ever listened to these words from the Bible? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whosoever will, let him, her, drink of the water of life freely. Jesus promised, whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. And one day he looked out over the city of Jerusalem and wept as he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. So the arms of God are open to all without exception, and it is this unlimited scope that makes salvation great, and one more thing makes it a great salvation, and that is its impact. Jesus died to save us all from the penalty of sin, but He also lives in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit, to deliver us from the power of sin and to guide us daily around its pitfalls. We're more than conquerors in this life through Him. And we are more than conquerors in the greater life to come. And speaking of greater, 1 John 4, 4, the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. It's talking about in this life, the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. And the Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead will raise our mortal bodies also. Indeed, <laughs> salvation is great. So I want to know, has this great salvation impacted your life, or is it just a matter of cold churchianity, church membership? You punch in, you punch out. You do this, you do that. You critique this, you critique that. 
I'm talking about the real heart and gut of real faith. Are you stuck? Are you enslaved to anger or unforgiveness or some addiction or some bad habit? Hebrews 2 is a declaration that there is complete victory only as we mature, only as we grow as Christians and give attention to our great salvation. So maybe a good thing for you to think about this morning is, are you progressing or are you regressing? Are you giving attention or are you neglecting your great salvation? Well, look at these powerful words from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, in putting everything under him, that is talking about Jesus, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Why? Because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now I want to give you the singular, a singular overarching truth this morning. And here it is. This is, the, this is the big idea. It was actually by suffering death that Jesus achieved the greatness that surpasses all others. It's related in another very familiar passage from Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 8, where it says that Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, because he did that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The death of Jesus, listen, is the way that he invaded the realm of the dead and pulled the stinger out of death. His submission to death was the way by which he was able to destroy the devil. You see, he suffered death. That is, he tasted death. We just read it. He tasted death for everyone so that he might destroy the one who holds the power of death. Now, death has no more dominion over Jesus or anyone who belongs to him. So think of it this way. Jesus literally went behind enemy lines, disarmed the power of death, and came back to life never to die again. And he said, because I live, you too shall live. And I love the way the biblical text from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says it. And these passages that we're reading today are just, just so incredible. Since the children have flesh and blood. Now, that's, that's you and me. We're the children. And we all have flesh and blood. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, or you could say our humanity, it's us, speaking of us too, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. 
I think we've gotten the first part of this passage. That is, I think we have a good comprehension at a cognitive level. We have a good understanding at an intellectual level that by the death of Jesus, we have victory over the evil one who holds the power of death. We've spent enough time on that. I want to put that away. Here's where I really want to focus today. I want to, I want to focus the healing laser of our faith on the unhealthy fear of death, which has enslaved too many throughout time, right up to the present. This text says that Jesus is greater than death, and it says that he wants to free us from the slavery of the fear of death. So let's make today the day. Let's make today the day, an unlikely day. It's icy, snowy outside. It's January, but let's make the day that we, all of us together, once and for all, overcome our fear of death. What do you say? Let's start by simply confronting the fact right now that every single one of us is dying. <laughs> every life is in the process of coming to an end. And aren't you glad you braved the snow and ice to come to church today to hear that? But there's something about that that is strangely comforting to me. We are all in this together. We're all aging. I suppose we're all at risk for terrorist bombings and random shootings and cancer. We think it always happens to the other person, but in our better moments we know it doesn't always happen to the other person. And George Bernard Shaw reminds us that the statistics on death are absolute, that one out of every one persons will die. And here's the reality. The process of dying starts at the moment of conception. We just need to be aware of that. And then we should also face the fact that for most people, death comes too soon. It does. It may be by a day. It may be by a decade. NBA Hall of Famer Pete Maravich was only 40 years old in 1989 when he fell dead on a gym floor after playing a pickup basketball game and he had just commented to a friend, I am really feeling good today. But face it, one day, probably before you and I are ready, we're going to look in a mirror, we're going to see a sunken face, and we're going to ask ourselves, what happened? How did it come to this so soon? Something else that's easy for us to overlook in the text we just read is that death is of the devil. Now, death and dying that plague this planet, you understand, were not God's idea. Death was not present in the pre-sin Garden of Eden. And death will not be present in the new heaven and the new earth that are coming, prophesied in Revelation 21.1. But people still blame God for death. You'll hear people say from time to time, the Lord took so-and-so. That sounds an awful lot like the Lord took out so-and-so. He's not some kind of a cosmic 
hit man. The fact is, our Heavenly Father is not the terminator of life. He is the giver of life, and He's promised. He's promised to be the terminator of death in the end. That's in Revelation 20, verse 14. So, death is of the devil. It's not God's plan in the beginning, and it will not be reality in the end. Then there's this. The fear of death reduces us to slaves. Well-known personality Ted Turner said in Time Magazine, the greatest fear I have is the fear of death. And the fear of death is enslaving. It dictates where we will and won't go. It dictates what we will and won't eat. It dictates who we will and won't associate with. Dictates how we will and won't travel. The fear of death causes some people to incessantly and needlessly visit doctors, and it causes other people to refuse to go see a doctor. Comedian Woody Allen said some time ago, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Well, three men had just been to a memorial service of a friend when their conversation turned to their own funerals coming one day, and one of them asked, what would, what would you guys like people to say about you? I'd like them to say about me. He was a great humanitarian who cared about his community. Another replied, well, I'd like them to say he was a great husband and father who was an example for many to follow. May looked at the third friend who'd been silent. Without hesitation, he concluded, well, at my funeral, I'd like someone to say, look, he's moving. Well, in closing today, what, what is it that sets us free as Christ followers? Sets us free from the fear of death. Here they are. Three powerful and practical truths that can set us free from our unhealthy fear of death. The first is this. In Christ, our past is forgiven. Jesus puts it this way in John 5, 24. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. You believe in Jesus from your heart. that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you confess, you confess Him as your Lord with your lips and with your life. You commit your soul to Him by sharing in His death and burial and resurrection and baptism. That's all involved in forgiveness and being transferred from death to life. And to have hope in Jesus Christ will give you a totally different perspective about death. The future is no longer dark and mysterious. And you may not know exactly what you will experience beyond the veil, but you do know who will be there to welcome you and walk you through it. One of our Crossroads elders came up to me last night He's counseled scores of people who are close to death. And he said, Ken, I can tell you from firsthand eyewitness experience, there is a big difference between the way Christians die and non-Christians die. He said there is a big difference between dying in fear and dread and dying with confidence and hope. 
Well, because Jesus paid for our sins on the cross and then arose from the dead, Scripture exclaims, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And right now I want to do something that I've never before done in a message. I want to show you the preview of a film that's coming out next month nationwide. It is called Risen. And I think it has the potential to awaken thousands to the reality of the single most important truth of Scripture that Jesus is risen from the dead. Watch. When the Messiah comes, Rome will be nothing! Until then, the Nazarene said he'd rise again after three days. We will lose peace and order if it's true. Will the people believe it? The weak will. There will be no other gods. Kill him. The tomb is sealed, guarded with your life. Tribune, Pilate summons you. The body has vanished. His tomb is empty. Where has he gone? You tell me. Already there, proclaiming him risen from death. The Emperor cannot arrive to unrest. We must find a body. Oh, no! Home the city for bodies dead in the last week. Take them up. Everyone. His disciples. Where are they hiding his corpse? It was not his followers. Another body, sir, just revealed. No. Who told you that Nazarene was alive? Mary Magdalene. You're looking for something you'll never find. Open your heart and see. No more lies. What happened to the body? The ropes, they just exploded. You should have returned by now. Seen two things which cannot reconcile. A man dead without question. And that same man alive again. What frightens you? Being wrong. Wagering eternity on it. Christ our past is forgiven, and in Christ our present is secure. That's the lesson of our text. We just read it. Jesus came in flesh and blood. He tasted life. He knows life. He understands life. He also knows and understands death. He tasted death. He faced it down. He conquered it for us. And in Deuteronomy, God reminds His people, the eyes of the Lord are upon you from the beginning of the year even to the end of the years. So do you feel his watchful and loving gaze on you today as his child, just as a newborn parent will sit for hours and watch every little movement of a newborn baby? God is watching over you and me as his children. And the Apostle Paul said it best that ultimately to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We are secure 
in him. And my favorite Dwight L. Moody quote is this one. Someday, he said to his congregation in his day and time, someday you'll pick up the newspaper and read that I've died. Don't you believe a word of it? I'll be more alive than I have ever been. And this quote leads me to this. Finally, we're free from the fear of death because in Christ, our future is amazing. John 14, 1, Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Leonardo da Vinci was 43 years old when the Duke of Milan asked him to paint the dramatic scene of Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples. Working slowly, giving meticulous care to details, he spent three years on that painting, three years on that assignment. And he grouped the disciples into two groups of three on either side of the central figure of Christ. In the picture, the arms of Jesus are outstretched, and in his right hand he holds a cup, painted beautifully with marvelous realism. When the masterpiece was finished, da Vinci said to a friend, I want you to look at it and give me your opinion of it. His friend looked at it and said, it's wonderful. He said, the cup is so real, I cannot divert my eyes from it. And immediately, da Vinci took a brush and drew it across the sparkling cup. And he exclaimed, nothing shall detract from the person of Christ. Is that true north in your life? Is that the center of who you are down deep where you really live? Nothing shall detract from the person of Christ. Ultimately, that's the only way you'll ever know freedom from the fear of death. Back to our key verse in this series from Hebrews 12. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.